Well, thank you very much. I appreciate the encouragement. And I'm also enjoying our series in prayer together. Um, the focus, of course, is on praying effectively. And this morning, it's our privilege to look at a prayer of confession. First John 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But... Knowing how to pray a prayer of confession is a real art, and thankfully, God's Word provides a template for us. This morning, we're going to look at Psalm 51, verses 1 through 19, and many of you are familiar with this psalm. If you're like me, you've had occasion, sadly, to go to this psalm perhaps more often than you would like as a template for bringing a prayer of confession before the Lord. And we're going to see that there are basically four key elements in a prayer of confession. First of all, there's a sense of shame over our sinful rebellion. Sin is an intentional falling short of God's standard. There's a sense of shame, a sense of guilt, a sense of, of sorrow over having violated God's standard. Secondly, confession asks for the stain of sin to be removed. That's what confession is, to remove the debt, to uh, remove the punishment that is due for the transgression. Third, it appeals for the separation to be restored. Our salvation is secure, but the fellowship that you and I experience with the Lord is affected by willful sin in the life of the believer. And then finally, confession aspires to submit to his revelation. True confession doesn't want to keep on sinning. This isn't a get-out-of-jail-free card that you play and then go back to the same behaviors that you were doing before. And we're going to see all of these beautiful elements in the psalm. And of course, if you're accustomed to praying like I am, you would probably do these in logical order. But one of the beauties of poetry, and particularly this psalm, is that these are four different colored threads in a tapestry that David masterfully weaves together. So today's notes are going to be a little different than some of the previous ones and that we're going to go back and forth between all four of these themes because it adds a depth and a beauty to the intensity of David's prayer. And I think you'll see what I mean as we work through Psalm 51 together. Notice the context of the prayers given to us in the superscription. This is a prayer that David offered to ask forgiveness for the guilt of sin associated with his sin with Bathsheba. He was confronted by the Nathan, the prophet rather, Nathan, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13. And this is the result of having been confronted by his sin. So if you have your Bibles, um, I've also got the text on the PowerPoint. I was asked what version I use. I use the New American Standard Version. It was the one I used when I went through seminary, and I'd compare my work in Greek and Hebrew with the NAS, and it just became a reliable sword that I appreciate the accuracy of the translation. So um, today I've, I've put the scriptures on the PowerPoint. As you know, some weeks I won't do that. But notice he begins by saying, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Notice that right out of the chute, 
David highlights the fact that the basis upon which he is asking for forgiveness is simply and exclusively God's love. There is no excuse. There is no promise that he can offer. He is simply asking God, first of all, to be gracious, a word that denotes unmerited favor. It's a plea for pity due to his helplessness. David recognizes his desperate need and recognizes that what he is asking for is undeserved. Secondly, loving kindness is God's love manifested in his promises. So not only is he offering this prayer for unmerited favor, but he is basing it on the scriptures. Thankfully, God provides a way for you and I as believers to restore our fellowship, and David is praying on the basis of God's revelation, his steadfast love shown in faithfulness to his promises. And then third, he prays on the basis of God's compassion, an attribute that means that God's love moves him to respond to our need. That Thankfully, we serve the kind of God who understands our frailty, and when our heart is right, when our, when our request is one that is legitimately offered, God understands and provides by exercising his power to meet our need. So notice right out of the chute, David demonstrates the basis upon which he is offering his prayer of confession. Now, any questions or comments on that? Any things you'd like to share? Yeah. Well, I've always wondered, why does the Bible and people and yourself emphasize the adultery part of the sin and not the murder? In my estimation, if I killed this guy to sleep with his wife, that would be a worse thing. Excellent. I understand. Excellent. And actually, the murder part does come up. Whether we'll get to it when he play, prays later on in the psalm, forgive me my blood guiltiness, um, that um, the, um, um, in verse 14, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. Um, I think that um, the, reason, the root reason was the adultery. In other words, it was because of his sin with Bathsheba that he then conspired to commit mur the murder of Uriah. Uh, so he's probably dealing with them in their chronological order. But, here, but the, other, the second sentence seems worse to me. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, yeah, uh, very much so. Especially in contrast to David, when you figure David had multiple eight wives, and Uriah apparently just had Bathsheba. And that's the point Nathan makes when he condemns. Yeah. You say that the uh, adultery does lead to the murder because it, you know, it's the corruption of the heart that you know, motivates him to even consider murder? You see what I'm saying? Yeah, I think, I think it was the pregnancy resulting from the adultery that led him to consider, now what do I do, uh, and led him to conspire to commit the murder of Uriah. The thing is, is that don't you think the whole adultery thing, as it, as it infiltrated his mind, actually put him on the downhill spiral at that point in time? Absolutely. And so the subsequent action was even worse, but he didn't realize uh, that he was that bad until, he, you know, it got completely out of control. Absolutely. And as men, I think that's an important lesson to be learned, 
that what starts as a lustful thought leads to a chain of events, as you well put, that can lead to choices that are spinning out of control. Uh, one sin leads to the another, and before you know it, D David realizes he is completely helpless in his guilt. He has a debt to pay, and he deserves to be punished by the true and living God. Any other comments? All right, then notice biblical confession is based on God's love for us as shown by his grace, compassion, and his faithfulness to his word. Notice there's no bargaining here. Lord, if you forgive me, I will do this, okay? How often do you hear individuals who try to bargain with God? David recognizes he has no basis apart from God's mercy, his love and kindness, and his compassion. Notice he moves into his shame over what he has done. And in an economy of words, he links three key Hebrew terms together to describe the immense atrocity that he has committed. The first is the word transgression, a word that emphasizes this was a deliberate and willful sin. It consciously violates the law of God. David knew that adultery was wrong. He knew that what he was conspiring to do to Uriah was wrong, and yet he chose to rebel against God's absolute standard. Secondly, the word iniquity describes the fact that as a result of violating God's law, we incur guilt. Biblically speaking, guilt has two components. We have a debt to pay, and we deserve to be punished. And David is keenly aware that he is now liable to both of those. And then finally, the word sin means that you've basically missed the mark established by God's word. It describes sin as falling short of God's absolute standard. So the nature of sin is a conscious violation of his absolute standard that results in guilt. So notice that, again, we're not really out of the first verse, and David has already introduced us to the basis as well as the problem. Any question or comment? <clears throat> All right, as you can imagine, he then moves to the heart of his confession, asking for the stain of sin to be removed. And again, part of the beauty of poetry is he's looking at forgiveness from a number of different angles. Sin, biblically speaking, is a debt in a ledger. We now owe God's holiness and justice because of the offense. The word blot out is a term that describes, please erase the debt from the divine ledger. Please blot out the... Um, a punishment that is due because you're the only one who can erase it. You're the only one who can remove it. Secondly, wash me. Notice he switches from sin as a debt to sin as defiling, making us dirty. And again, the stain is such that only the blood of, of Christ ultimately can wash it away. Now, we'll see a little later that David's going to talk about the blood of bulls and goats, which was a pointer to the ultimate sacrifice upon which the stain of sin would be removed. Okay, any comments on that?
Okay, pretty basic theology, but I think we've already gotten a grasp for the, the beauty and the intensity with which David is approaching God's throne. Notice he goes back to his guiltiness. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. So he can't get it out of his mind. The sin is prominent in his conscience, vividly present before him, causing him grief, pain, and shame. Notice that this is not a casual attitude. We live in a day and age where it's almost accepted that we commit sin. It's no big deal. And yet David is coming to grips with the fact that sin is a big deal, that this is something to be ashamed of and sorrowful and grieved by. And David was unsuccessful in suppressing it, obliterating it from his mind. Notice what makes it so serious is the person against whom sin is committed. Notice in verse 4, he says, Against you, you only have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Here he's highlighting the severity of the breach. Again, he sinned against his own wives. He sinned against Uriah. But right now, his focus is upon the fact that he has sinned against the true and living God. And in the hierarchy of offenses, he's at the top of the pyramid. And so, Unlike much of the attitude towards sin in our culture today, notice David has a firm grasp on how serious sin is in the life of the believer. He goes on to say, so you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Notice he comes before the Lord as holy and righteous and doesn't offer any excuse, doesn't pass the buck, doesn't justify his behavior. As a matter of fact, he um, acknowledges his guilt and agrees that the Lord as holy, righteous, and just deserves to inflict punishment upon him. That punishment is, is, involves not only uh, punishment toward the guilt of his sin, but also the separation of fellowship that occurs as a result of sin. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Notice that this is not an attempt to pass the buck, but rather he's saying, I'm a sinner inwardly as well as outwardly. I was conceived in sin. I have a depraved or corrupt nature. And as a result, what you saw me do was a manifestation of who I am, that I am a sinner I'm inclined to sin. I am prone to sin. As a matter of fact, this may even be an implicit reference to the fact that David has struggled with um, impure thoughts, adultery all his life. We know biblically he had at least eight wives, and therefore he may be also acknowledging that even though he only committed adultery in this one case, it, with regard to his heart, it's been an ongoing struggle. So again, notice that as part of confession, there is no attempt to pass the buck or justify our behavior. Furthermore, in terms of confession, it also recognizes the seriousness of falling short of that which God has asked us to do.
Any questions or comments on this section? Yes, sir. That sounds like he is trying to explain why he's doing it, so it's okay what he did. Okay. Yeah, and, and that's why I wanted to qualify my exposition of it. I, I don't think that's what he's, I don't think he's trying to say um, that this excuses me, but I think what he's saying is the problem is deeper than just a one-time act. The problem is the fact that I am inclined toward this kind of activity, and rather than rely upon your strength rely and obey your word, I gave in to it. So I think he's, rather than saying, you know, I, I am um, excusing my behavior because of my corrupt nature, he's saying, I am owning the fact that I gave in to my corrupt nature. And as a result, it's an even deeper problem. And that's why confession recognizes that not only do I have the, the problem of punishment and debt, but I've got the problem of this corrupt nature that to struggle. And then we're going to see later on, he asked God to deal with that as well. But great observation. Thanks for asking that. Any other questions, comments? All right. Then notice, confession is grieved at having rebelled against God and falling short of his standard as revealed in his word. Again, this has the idea of repentance, of sorrow, um, all associated with the seriousness of our transgression. Now, notice that this is where we see he moves out of the statement about his corrupt nature and say, even though I am bent toward sinning, even though the fall affected me, I don't want to live this way. Notice what he says in verse 6. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being. So rather than being inclined towards sin, he acknowledges that what God wants is for you and I to be steady, to be reliable. We, he wants us to be men who accept God's revelation and who act in harmony with God's word. So this is where his confession turns and actually aspires to stop sinning, that he doesn't want this to be a chronic pattern in his life. He wants to be dependable in his commitment to the truth. Furthermore, he wants to be given discernment. In the hidden part, you will make me to know wisdom. One of the blessings of the new covenant as revealed in the Old Testament is law written on the heart that wisdom that flows from within, where the Word of God is no longer external, but actually driving his choices and decision-making. Okay, any questions or comments on this aspect? Notice how quickly we move back and forth between these four various areas, but in the, in the process, I think we get a sense of both the urgency and the fervency of his desire in offering this prayer. Any comments, observations? Yeah. It seems like this is where you really, David pursued his heart, or God, that's, you hear that all through the Bible or through word studying the Old Testament and the BSS study. Excellent. And, and David, as they go through all the different kings and David, uh, they 
you know, he had a heart issue. Yeah, exactly. And yet our Lord said that David was a man after his own heart. And I think this is why, because, and I think to the degree that you and I can emulate this fervency of not allowing sin to become a chronic characteristic of our lives, but aspiring to be the kind of men who are driven by truth and guided by wisdom that comes from within. That's the heart of a man who pleases God. We're all going to sin, but notice that sin should be, not become the norm and should not become acceptable, and nor do we need to lose a grip on the seriousness of violating God's standard. Any other questions, comments, observations? Okay. Notice he moves back to asking for the stain to be removed. In verse 7, he says, Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Now, theologically speaking, he's moving toward the basis upon which forgiveness is granted. This is a picture of what uh, hyssop most likely looks like. Uh, there's some debate with regard to the specific variety of plant, but it's a plant that has very sturdy branches and very dense foliage that made it perfect for applying blood to the doorposts and lintel at the Passover. Hyssop was the brush, so to speak, that was used to apply the blood of the Passover lamb. And therefore, I think that David is ultimately pleading on the basis of sacrifice and shed blood. Scripture is very clear that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Now, this is an Old Testament psalm. He's praying on the basis of God's provision for Old Testament believers. But we know on the basis of the New Testament that it's the blood of Jesus Christ that has provided the ultimate sacrifice once and for all that it's the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, that cleanses us from all sin. But theologically, this is an important part of the prayer because God can't ignore the debt, nor can he ignore the punishment. It has to be absorbed by a substitute. And this is where David indicates his knowledge of the fact that that guilt needs to be atoned for by means of a satisfactory substitute. And that's why you and I can rejoice that Jesus Christ was willing to be that substitute. But in the context of the Old Testament, he's still praying on the basis of God's provision, looking forward to what Jesus Christ would do on our behalf. So notice that on the basis of blood, the, the word translated purify here literally means to unsin, to reverse the guilt and consequences of sin. It's as if you could erase the sin so that no trace of it remained. He prays that he would be clean, that the defilement would be washed away and definitively removed. And he asks that his, his being be restored to the purity of a snowfall. Um, and therefore, it uh, again um, refers to the removal of the stain associated with sin. 
So again, we see the confession, confession admits that sin incurs a debt and a stain only God can remove. And on the basis of the New Testament, we know that that stain is only removed by the blood of Jesus Christ as we appeal and request on the basis of his shed blood. Any questions or comments on that? Any comment about uh, impurity? We want to uh, remove the consequences of sin. Mm -hmm. And obviously that's the consequences of separation from God. Because mm -hmm. We all have the consequences of the reality of, of the product mm -hmm. of sin in our life. You know, whether it's, you know, a child born out of wedlock or whatever. Right. And God, as infinitely loving and holy, knows first of all, that the eternal consequences have already been paid for in the blood of Christ. The fellowship consequences can be removed through confession, but sometimes there are temporal consequences that linger. As you know, uh, the child that was conceived with Bathsheba dies as a direct result of his sin. So sometimes there are temporal consequences. Some have argued that the sinful behavior of some of David's son is ultimately traceable back to the sinful way he conducted himself. And certainly Joab was privy to the, and some have traced some of Joab's behavior to having the inside scoop as to what really happened with David and Bathsheba. So there may be consequences that are experienced in this life because of sin. But you're exactly right. On the basis of this, the, the consequences in terms of restored fellowship and then certainly the um, uh, eternal consequences have been paid for in their entirety. So, great question. Any other comments, observations? Okay. Now, this is the first time that David turns to ask that the separation be restored. Notice he says, make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. So he compares his shame to actually having broken bones, the pain, the sorrow. In its place, he's asking God to make me hear joy and gladness. He longs to hear that his sins have been pardoned and that everything has been restored in his relationship with God so that he is anticipating, delighting in the forgiveness that God bestows. So notice, I know one thing I appreciate about this psalm is that, yes, confession always involves asking for forgiveness, but the idea of renewing steadfast commitment and restoring fellowship were areas that really enriched my time in prayers of confession with the Lord. Any questions or comments on that? Yeah. I think this is the toughest part of it, uh, forgiving yourself. Okay. That uh, The challenge there, I mean, uh, I've gotten forgiveness from God, but the idea that you would, you know, just a challenge to forgive yourself. And one of my Bible studies, uh, Kenny Johnson, Brought to ask me if I was better than God. Do I believe God forgave me? I said, yeah. Then why do you think you're better than God? But it's still hard to forget. It's hard. Okay. To, it's hard to 
wash that stain out of your soul. Excellent. And I think you've raised an important point here. For those of us who have committed what we would consider serious sins or sins that we are lingering in our minds and thoughts, it may be that you have to go back and pray over the sin numerous times, not from the divine standpoint, but in terms of forgiving ourselves, in terms of living on the basis of the pardon that God grants. It may take a while for us to embrace the fact that the stain has been removed and embrace the fact that the debt has been paid. And therefore, there are believers who still feel guilty over sins that they have committed. And that's where coming to grips with the fact that by the end of the psalm, David is going to be assured that he is forgiven. And I was, as I was driving in this morning, I think that's one of the blessings of our faith, that in the face of sin, we can ask for forgiveness and be restored whole, clean, and in fellowship with God. I don't know of any other religion that is like that, because if you have to earn your salvation and earn your relationship with God, you never have that sense of freedom. You never have that sense of peace and pardon. Now, it's not always easy, and it's not always automatic, and that's why I think that for many believers, they may find themselves having to pray uh, over a period of time. The reluctance is not on God's part, but often we may need to ask for an assurance, a peace to be restored that assures us that the guilt and the shame have been forgiven. Excellent observation. Any other comments? Uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah. I think that this is one of the main main uh, sources that Satan uses is guilt. Okay. And, and people need to really uh, recognize that and take this aspect to heart and believe it. Absolutely. And you know, I think that on the one hand, we live in a culture that tends to deny guilt. In other words, there, there are very few thin things that fall into the category of sin anymore. I think this is a wake-up call for that. On the flip side, there are a lot of people who are under bondage to feelings of guilt who don't need to feel that way. Now, if you've got unbelieving friends who are under guilt, that's a good thing because it's an opportunity for you to share with them the freedom that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. There is a good place for people to legitimately feel guilty. Don't try to wipe it away or suppress it. Lead them to Jesus Christ because it's the blood of Jesus Christ that ultimately deals with our sin and guilt problem. But you're exactly right. Uh, I've met many believers who are still struggling with things that happened 10, 15 years ago. And the beauty of confession is our fellowship can be restored completely on the basis of this kind of prayer. All right. Any other comment? Yeah. To me, this is a great example of David working out his own salvation with fear and trembling. Exactly. This is part of what it means to quote your verse, uh, working out our salvation in fear and trembling. This is what it means to live with 
deep-seated reverence and awe for God and recognizing that as long as we live in these bodies, we will be prone to sin, that, to not excuse it, to not defend it, to aspire to live a holy life, and yet at the same time when we do sin, to be sure to confess our sins and experience the kind of forgiveness that David himself experienced. Okay, notice he goes back to asking for the stain to be removed. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Here he wants God to no longer see the debt and to see the defilement. Uh, to use another passage, to bury it in the deepest sea, to bury it out of sight. Secondly, he wants its penalty to be erased from the ledger. So notice those two elements are very much part of what it means to ask for confession, to deal with the guilt and the debt and the punishment, and to, to deal with the defilement, the dirtiness, the, the, uh, that results. Notice he then moves into a beautiful part of the psalm where he asks that he would be returned to a spirit of steadfastness. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. One of the things I love about this psalm is even if you don't need to confess, this part of the prayer should be something we ask the Lord for on a regular basis. Wouldn't it be wonderful if God would answer this prayer consistently in each of our lives, where we live lives with such clean hearts, uh, such unparalleled um, commitment to God, that our commitment is absolutely steadfast. The word denotes um, firm in the faith, one that constantly obeys. And the fact that he is asking indicates that this is something only God can, can do. We can't produce this in our own strength. But if we rely upon the indwelling strength of the Holy Spirit, walk by the Spirit, then we can have this kind of spirit. Secondly, do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Now, again, we're back in the Old Testament. And let me, David here is basically saying, please don't remove me from service. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit only indwelt certain individuals, priests and kings. Here's a passage from 1st Jan. Samuel chapter 16, where we read, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. David's anointed king. He receives the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to enable him to function in that role. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. The Lord was finished with Saul as king, and so the Holy Spirit was removed. So here in this passage, David is asking that something similar not happen. He recognizes that this is a first-order sin where God could very well choose to remove him as king from Israel. Now, fortunately, we don't need to pray for the Lord to not take his Holy Spirit from us. One of the blessings of living after the day of Pentecost in fulfillment of our Lord's words in John 14 where he says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. The Holy Spirit permanently indwells us during this era. 
But I do think that the prayer is still valid in that sin can affect the venues of our service for the Lord. And therefore, what David is praying here is that what he has done will not carry the temporal consequence of removing him from usefulness to the Lord and to his work. Now, let me pause there. Any questions or comments on that? Yeah. Are we to assume that David would have gone to the priest and had a sin offering put up in the middle of like a psalm like this? Did he do something physically? Because sure in the Old Testament, they'd put up sin offerings and fellowship offerings. Would David, in the middle of this, done that? Because otherwise, I mean, as far as it reads. Um, excellent point. We'll see at the end of the psalm that he does, but he recognizes it's pointless to offer the sacrifice until this happens first. Because it's the the sorrow of the soul that in the Old Testament context led to an acceptable sacrifice being offered. And he's clearly avoiding the idea that says, all I need to do is go offer a, a sheep and I'm good with God. In other words, God is not pleased by rituals apart from relationship. So I think this part came first, the, where the relationship was affirmed first, and then the sacrifices were offered uh, in the prescribed way. He doesn't say he actually went and did that. No, no, but he does say that he will by the end of the psalm. So, great question. All right. I hope you're having as much fun as I have. Believe it or not, we're out of time. The rest is in the notes, but notice he does affirm Submission, restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. This is the second part that I absolutely love. He wants to serve the Lord out of a heartfelt freedom to do so. And that's the note in which I'd like to leave our discussion today because whether you're guilty of sin and need to pray for confession, we can all pray that we would have a willing spirit that whatever the Lord has for us today serves him as a choice of our will by the power of the Holy Spirit in response to the word of God. Thank you, gentlemen. I'm going to turn back over to Tom. Oh. You want me to pray? All right, let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for this beautiful psalm, a beautiful expression of a, of a heart that wants to be in close fellowship with you. Lord, the reality is that we will often sin and fall short of your standard. But the even greater reality is I pray that each of us would aspire to serve you in a willing spirit, that you would create within us a clean heart that genuinely wants to walk in close, intimate, and um, daily fellowship with you. Toward that end, we commit each person in this room into your hands, asking that we would go forth and honor and glorify you today. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.